Thank you for joining us on the sermon podcast for Mars Hill Cumberland Presbyterian Church. We love being able to distribute our sermons in this format, but we would love it even more if you could join us in person at 5208 Crow Mountain Road in Russellville, Arkansas, or online at the Mars Hill Cumberland Presbyterian Church Facebook page. We have Sunday school classes at 9 a.m. with a worship service right after at 10 a.m. Let's now prepare our hearts to hear a message from God's Word. Let me start off by saying, don't shoot the messenger this morning. Uh, This was the psalm that was in the lectionary, and it is the one that I could not get away from, regardless of how much I tried to preach something else. And so I feel like I've got a word for us this morning. And so if you turn to Psalm 126, we will read that psalm together if you would stand for the reading of God's word when you get there. Hear the word of the Lord. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. And then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the water courses in the Negev. May those who sow in tears reap with shouts of joy. He that goes forth weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. This ends the reading of God's word, the word of God for the people of God. Oh, come on, you can do better than that. The word of God for the people of God. There we go. You may be seated. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, as your word has been read, we pray that you would give us joy. We pray that you would restore our fortunes like the psalm says. We pray that you would fill our mouth with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. But Father, before we get to that point, we pray that you would show us the depths of our sin so that we can understand how good your grace is. And how much you long to bless us and give us life and give us holiness. We ask this all in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. I was in choir at Pottsville High School, just up the road here. And uh, we had a choir director named Kevin Ray. Some of you might have even known him if you had kids or grandkids who had been in choir or band. And Mr. Ray loved Bob Seeger. One day, Mr. Ray was going on and on about Bob Seger, and my friend Philip Willis um, <laughs> pipes up and says, Bob Seger? Who's Bob Seger? Don't you mean Bob Saget? <laughs> I have never seen a man so disappointed and dejected as Mr. Ray was that day. Uh, he stopped what he was saying, looked Philip dead in the eye, gave him a long death glare, and then went right back to what he was saying. <laughs> I was reminded of that interaction between Philip and Mr. Ray because I've been thinking about Bob Seger's music a little bit this week. One of the things that Bob Seger did with his music that I don't think a lot of artists do now is he made music that expressed what it meant to be in a place where you no longer feel like you're in the prime of your life. He knew what it was to feel like your glory days were behind you with songs like Against the Wind and Like a Rock. As a matter of fact, listen to a few lines of Like a Rock. It says, stood there boldly, sweating in the sun. Felt like a million, felt like number one. 
the height of summer, I'd never felt that strong like a rock. I was 18, didn't have a care, working for peanuts, not a dime to spare, but I was lean and solid everywhere. My eyes were clear and bright, my walk had purpose, my steps were quick and light, and I held firmly to what I felt was right, like a rock. Like a rock, I was strong as I could be. Like a rock, nothing, nothing ever got to me. Like a rock, I was something to see. Like a rock. And I'm sure many of us can relate to that. Even at 30, I am still in pretty good health, but I'm not the same as I was at 18 or 19. And if you're still with me, you might think all of this sounds pretty discouraging. But what I believe God wants to show us this morning is, through Psalm 126 is that we don't have to be stuck looking back at our glory days. We don't have to be stuck looking back at a time in our life when we were like a rock. We don't have to be stuck looking back on what was or what could have been. We don't have to be left believing that, this is, that, that the best is behind us. This morning, we can look ahead believing that the best is yet to come. So in John chapter 2, when Jesus turns the water into wine at Cana, the master of the feast told the bridegroom, he said, every man at the beginning sets out good wine. And when the guests are well drunk, then they set out the inferior wine. But he said to the master of the feast, but the master of the feast told the bridegroom, he said, you have kept the good wine until now. And so the thesis that I would like to put before you this morning is that just when you think it's over, God can bring it all back again. And so I want to preach this morning from the title, From a Dream to a Deliverance. But as we look at this song, I want us to see the progression of it. I want us to see this psalm as an example of how God moves and shifts us from faith to faith and glory to glory, as it were. And so we begin at a place where we can only dream of deliverance. Because we can't understand the full weight of this song, of this psalm, until we understand the context in which it was written. We can't understand the joy and celebration of this psalm until we begin at a place where there is no joy, and where there is no celebration, where there is no reason to shout. And so we begin at a place before deliverance. Look at verse 1. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. If you notice verse 1, you'll notice right out of the gate that the psalmist begins speaking from a place of deliverance, but he had to go through some things to get there. Because here's the thing, you never experience a breakthrough in your life without having to go through some things. Before the psalmist put his pen to the paper, he had already experienced what it was to live in a place where he had lost everything that he's ever worked for. The psalmist already knew what it was, what it was like to have all of the plans and dreams he had for his life come crashing down. Because you see, the author of this psalm has witnessed the captivity of his people by Babylon and their subsequent release by King Cyrus. This psalm wasn't written by David. It's one of the few psalms that are, that's not written by David. It was written long past David's time, and if Methodist commentator Adam Clark is correct, then this psalm might have been composed by Haggai or Zechariah or possibly Ezra. 
So this would put us later in Old Testament history. So in order to grasp the context of this psalm, we need to understand what the exile meant to the people of God during this time because we don't get what exile means now. We don't understand what that means because we're surrounded by comfort. We have it good. We think, we, we think life is terrible because gas prices are high. We think life is terrible because there's a president in office that we didn't vote for. But let me tell you something. You will never have it as bad in your lifetime as the people of God had it when they went into exile. You can sit here on your padded pew in your air-conditioned church house and complain all you want, but you will never have it as bad as the people of God had it in exile. Y'all are getting quiet on me this morning. Listen to what they went through in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, 14-21. All the leading priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations. And they polluted the house of the Lord, which He had followed in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by His messengers, because He had compassion on His people." And on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God. Despising his words. And scoffing at his prophets. Till the wrath of the Lord. Rose against his people. Till there was no remedy. Therefore he brought up against them. The king of the Chaldeans. Who slew their young men with the sword. In the house of their sanctuary. And had no compassion. On young men or virgin. Old man or aged. He gave them. He gave them all into his hand, on all the vessels, and all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king, and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they, and they burned the house of God. Think about this. They burned the house of God. They burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths, and all the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Notice that last verse that mentions that all of this was done to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. Now that's important, because anytime the Bible mentions an author or quotes from another portion of Scripture that's not immediately in front of you, it's very critical to your understanding of the Bible that you look for that reference so that you can have a comprehensive understanding of what's being said because you want to know what the original audience would have heard and what they would have understood. So if you have cross-references in your Bible, then it will direct you to the book of Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 8 through 12, because this, this is where Jeremiah predicts that all of this would happen. Jeremiah 25, 8 through 12, he says, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, says the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these nations round about, and I will utterly destroy them and make them a horror 
a hissing, and an everlasting reproach. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon seventy years. And then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, says the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. And so what does the Lord say? God says that because of their sin, because of their iniquity, He's going to cause them to go into exile. And then He's going to punish the very nation that took them into exile. If you look at both of these passages clearly, you'll notice one common theme. The people of God persisted in disobedience. It wasn't that they just disobeyed one time, realized their mistake, and went back. They persisted in disobedience. They refused to repent. God sent prophets to warn them over and over again. God sent godly men and women to rise up and speak truth to power. But 2 Chronicles 36.16 tells us that they mocked the messengers of God, they despised His word, and they scoffed at His prophets. And according to the text, how long did all of this go on? It went on until the wrath of the Lord rose against His people till there was no remedy. There's nothing left. The time for warning and talking is over. It has has come to action on God's part. The people have been adequately warned and they've been invited to repent over and over and over again. And they refused. And maybe this is what's happened to some of us here this morning. The people have been warned over and over and over again to repent. And now is the time that God will hand them over into exile. Now if you read 2 Kings 25, I realize I'm jumping around, but but pay attention. This is really important. If you pay attention to 2 Kings 25, you'll see a graphic description of what happened when the Babylonians invaded. 2 Kings 25, 7-10. They slew the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and they put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in fetters and took him to Babylon. What they did is they took his sons and they murdered them one by one by one in front of him and then they gouged out his eyes so that that would be the last thing he saw. And in the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, which was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Nebuchadnezzarin, captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon, he came to Jerusalem and he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned down. And all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. Now, now look at verse 13, 2 Kings 25, 13. And the pillars of bronze that were in the house of the Lord and the stands in the bronze sea that were in the house of the Lord, the Chaldeans broke in pieces and carried the bronze to Babylon. And so what happened? Why did all of this come to ruin? Why did all of this become flat right before their very eyes. 
It's because they made an idol out of their own security, so their walls were torn down. The people of God made an idol out of their temple, so it, will be, so it was ransacked and left in ruins. The people made an idol out of, their leader, out of their leaders, and now their leaders' houses are being burned, and they're marching alongside the common people underneath them right into Babylon. They made an idol out of everything and that they built for themselves, and now it was taken away. They made an idol out of their freedom. And so now they have no freedom. Listen, some of y'all, I don't think I don't think we get this this morning. I don't think we get this this morning. I think we just I think we understand that this is this is something that actually happened in history, but I don't think we understand how it applies to us today. I think we're so comfortable. I think we're so at ease that we don't get that this could happen to us. Listen, if you ask me, this all sounds just like America. And I think it's a terrible use of Scripture to read America into the Bible where it's not there. But if we really want to get down to brass tacks, a lot of American Christians have this fascination that America is God's chosen nation over and against every other nation, some of which have a more deeply Christian heritage than our own. So if you want to read America into biblical prophecy, then look where Israel gets sent into exile for their continued disobedience. And tell me that doesn't sound like the nation in which we live. Right after 9-11, Reverend Dr. Jeremiah Wright preaches a sermon from the pulpit of Trinity United Church of Christ in Chicago. And this is what he said about the terrorist attacks that happened in 9-11 and how we should respond to them. Now listen, this sounds just like exile. This sounds just like what happened to Jerusalem on the day that they were invaded and brought into exile. This is what Wright said. He said, We bombed Grenada and killed innocent civilians, babies, and non-military personnel. We bombed the black civilian community of Panama with stealth bombers and killed unarmed teenagers and toddlers, pregnant mothers, and hard-working fathers. We bombed Gaddafi's home and killed his child. We bombed Hiroshima. We bombed Nagasaki. And we nuked far more than the thousands in New York and the Pentagon. And we never batted an eye. Kids playing in the playground, mothers picking up children from school, civilians, not soldiers, people just trying to make it day by day. We have supported state terrorism against the Palestinians and black South Africans, and now we are indignant because the stuff we have done overseas is now brought right back home to our own front yards. America's chickens are coming home to roost. Violence begets violence. Hatred begets hatred. Terrorism begets terrorism. And you You would think, you would think that we learned a lesson from all that, but we haven't. President Bush killed civilians. President Obama killed civilians. President Trump killed civilians. President Biden is now killing civilians as we speak. And that's just foreign policy. That's not to mention all of the abortion clinics catering to anybody that wants an abortion on demand. Maryland is now trying to pass a law that will allow abortions up to seven days out of the womb. There is blood pouring off the hands of every lawmaker who supported all of those acts of war and murder, and there's blood on the hands of every person who voted for them. And I bring all of this up because I want us to get an idea of the kind of condition that Israel was in when God sent them into exile. And I want us to see that sometimes... We can only hear in our exile 
what God was saying all along in our freedom. I'll say that again. Sometimes we can only hear in our exile what God was saying all along in our freedom. So before we can celebrate our deliverance, we have to understand why we need deliverance in the first place. We can't understand why the good news is so good unless we understand why the bad news is so bad. And so we move from a place where we can only dream of deliverance to a place of real, tangible deliverance. Look at verses 1 and now look at verses 2 and 3 in addition to it in Psalm 126. Look at it again very carefully. When the, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. And then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. Think about that for just a second. They said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. Anytime, if you're reading like the old King James Bible, you'll, for, for the word nations, you'll see the old word heathen. They said among the heathen, the Lord has done great, name, great things for them. What does that mean? It means that all of those nations, all of those surrounding nations that worshipped idols, that didn't believe in Jehovah, that didn't believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they recognized that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was doing something. It's incredible. They said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. And we agreed in verse 3, the Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. A few minutes ago when I read from 2 Chronicles 36, the more astute of you may have noticed that I stopped short a couple of verses of reading the whole chapter. Well, this is what it says in the rest of the chapter. In 2 Chronicles 36.22 It says now in the first year of Cyrus king of Persia that the word of the Lord might, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus king of Persia so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Now before we get to what the proclamation says, remember what we said. When a, passage, when a passage mentions another biblical author or quotes from another section of scripture, we have to find out where it's referencing. Second Chronicles 36.22 is referencing a prophecy made by Jeremiah in Jeremiah 29.10. And, and listen to that, what that prophecy says from Jeremiah 29.10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed, when it's all said and done, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back into this place. And then Jeremiah's scribe, a man named Baruch, he recorded this in his writings. It's not scripture, but it's recorded in the Apocrypha. In Baruch 4.23, it says, For I sent you out with sorrow and weeping, but God will give you back to me with joy and gladness forever. We have to understand that not only was their captivity orchestrated by God, but so was their deliverance. Isaiah 57.16 says, I will not be hostile forever or perpetually angry. 
For then man's spirit would grow faint before me, the life-giving breath that I created. Over After 70 years of captivity had passed, God moved on the heart of King Cyrus to allow them to return home, and they went back with joy, and God turned it all around for them and brought them back to where they were driven from. Now is a good time to tell you about how some of the theologians like to organize and categorize the Psalms. According to Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann, I've I've put this on the back of your bulletin, by the way, in the sermon notes in case you want to look at it later. But according to Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann, the Psalms can be divided up into three categories. Psalms of orientation, you know, like Psalm 8, Psalm 19, those Psalms that just cause you to adore God for who He is and examine your place in the world. Brueggemann calls those Psalms of orientation. And then there are Psalms of disorientation, Psalms like, Psalm 3, Psalm 4, Psalm 5, 7, 9 through 10, 13, and there's several others. The list goes on. These are psalms that express those times in life when we experience chaos and the effects of sin in our life and in our world. These are the psalms where you see the psalmist saying things like, God, where are you? My enemies are surrounding me and I can't seem to find you. These are the psalms where we are lamenting our sin and our brokenness. These are the psalms that allow us to express our deepest disappointments to God. So there are psalms of orientation, psalms of disorientation, and then finally there are psalms of reorientation. Psalms like Psalm 18, Psalm 21, Psalm 30, Psalm 40. These are psalms where we thank God for bringing us up on the other side of our trial and despair. The thinking is that you start out at a place of orientation. You start out in a place of understanding that God is in control and that He's got you in the palm of His hand and then something happens. You might fall into sin. Somebody might sin against you. You might encounter a period of suffering that's the result of fallenness and brokenness in the world. And when that something happens, you become disoriented. And then, then when God brings you out on the other side of your disorientation, you become reoriented. That's why David can say in Psalm 40, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the desolate pit out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. We used to sing a song in the assemblies of God that said, He brought me out of the miry clay. He set my feet on the rock to stay. He puts a song in my soul today, a song of praise. Hallelujah. And so what happens is that God brings them to a place of real deliverance. He brought them to their land and they're thankful, but they don't want their restoration to become a memory. They don't want it to become just an event that they can look fondly back on and remember the good old days. They want something more. They want God to do it again. Look at verse 4. Psalm 126 verse 4. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the water courses in the Negev. So what the psalmist is saying is he's saying, Lord, you've done it before. Do it again. Do it again. On the first Sunday night of the month when the women are having CPW, do you know what I, you know, I, I do during that time while the women are back there in the fellowship hall? I just sit in here. It's just me and the Lord. 
and I look through the old photo albums that we keep under the communion table. I look at the pictures of all the people filed into the pews. I look at all the pictures of all the infant baptisms and weddings, and I pray, Lord, do it again. Do it again. You've done it before. Do it again. And I'm going to ask you a question, and I don't need you to say anything out loud. I just want you to be honest with yourself, and most of all, be honest with God. When was the last time you prayed, God, do it again? When was the last time you got on your face and cried out, Oh God, do it again. I believe this with all of my heart. If we will cry out to God and say, God, do it again, then I believe God will answer our prayers and we'll see the result in verses 5 and 6 and we'll see that God can take us from a place where we only dream of deliverance to a place of real tangible deliverance. And as we make the transfer from dream to deliverance, we'll see the process of deliverance in, it, in real living color. Look at the process of deliverance found in verses 5 and 6. May those who sow in tears reap with shouts of joy. He that goes forth weeping. Listen carefully. He that goes forth weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. What the psalmist describes here is a process of weeping and reaping. It's a process of sowing in sorrow and reaping with rejoicing. And there's, there's two kinds of people that need to hear these verses. There's two kinds of people that need to hear these verses. Number one, there are those who are confounded by their sorrow. And then there are those who are confused as to why there is no harvest. So let's, let's address the first group of people first. Let's talk about those who are confounded by their, sorry, by, by their sorrow. Let me talk to those of you who are experiencing mourning. Let me declare to you this morning that your sorrow and your suffering has meaning. Your suffering has meaning. Your dark night of the soul has not, gone, has not gone unnoticed. God is using it to shape and form you into the image of Christ. And just like Job, you can say when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. 1 Peter in, chapter, in 1 Peter 4, 12-14, this is what Peter says. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal which comes upon you to prove you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you may share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Let me just stop there for a second. Let me get off my notes for a second because we talked about this in the men's class in Sunday school. I want to reiterate as clearly as I possibly can. Throughout the New Testament, Paul repeatedly, over and over again throughout his letters, talks about us being in Christ. You, you are in Christ. You are in the Beloved. And whenever we hear that phrase, I think we hear it so much that it's almost become like white noise when we read the Bible. We don't get the weight of it. We don't get the gravity of it the way Paul intended for us to get it. When you think about in Christ, what do you think of? And, I th and here's the problem. Most of the time when we think about how we are in Christ or how we're saved, we just, think about, we just think about going to heaven when we die. We think that's the be-all, end-all. Going to heaven when we die is just, just the bee's knees, and that's all there is to this thing, and that's not true. Yeah, you go to heaven when you die. That's good. But heaven doesn't mean anything without Jesus. Listen, if, if you don't enjoy your life with God 
here, you're not going to enjoy heaven later. Because that's all heaven is, is the presence of God in its fullest, most uncensored, unfiltered form. You have to live with Christ now if you intend to live with Christ later. And so what Paul talks about repeatedly, over and over again, throughout his letters, when he talks about us being in Christ, he talks about us genuinely being in Christ. He talks about us living the life that Christ lived. He talked about us walking with Christ suffering. When Jesus is flogged and He is beaten, we are in Christ being beaten along with Him. When Christ is on the cross, we experience His death with Him. That's what baptism is about. And when Christ resurrects to new life on the third day, we resurrect with Him. That's why Paul can tell the Ephesian church that they are seated with Him in heavenly places. And we, we don't understand that because we don't really know what it's like to suffer. We don't know what it's like to suffer the way the apostles did. We don't know what it's like to be persecuted for our faith. We might one day. Who knows? Who knows what the future is going to bring? But as it stands right now, we've never really had to suffer for our faith. And so what Paul wants to remind us, what, the, what really the message of the whole Bible wants to remind us of is the fact that if you... Or if you stand firm with Christ, if you believe in Christ, you are with Him all the way. It's not just with Him in His resurrection. You are with Him in His suffering. You are with Him in His death. There is a part of you, when you were converted to Christ, there had to be a part of you that died. Because if there's no death, there's no life, it's just that simple. And so listen to what Peter says. Again, he says, Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. If you feel like, this morning, if you feel like you've been thrown into the furnace of affliction, go ahead and burn. Because, it's, because all that burning is doing away with everything that doesn't need to be in your life. If you're in the furnace of affliction, go ahead and burn. Let the furnace of affliction burn away the sin and the dross in your life. Because when it's done, you're going to come forth in the image of Christ. Oh, come on, that's good stuff. Listen, if you want to shout, go ahead and shout. If you want to cry, cry. If you want to weep, weep. Listen. Your suffering means something. And so now let's address the next group of people, those who, are those who are confused by the lack of harvest. Let me talk to those of you who might look around and wonder why there is no harvest. You look around and you wonder, why won't God do it again? Why won't God restore our fortunes? Why isn't the church growing? Well, you know, it's just life. It just happens. People die. People move away. Eh, it just happens. That's, that's the general response you get, right? Are you sure there's nothing deeper than that? Because it's easy just to stay on the surface level of things, right? That's more convenient. Every single person in this room has, has grown something in a garden, right? So I'm going to tell you something that you should understand. You will not get a harvest until you put a seed in the ground. You will not get a harvest until you put a seed in the ground. Now I realize that's life-changing information, right? 
But pick up what I'm laying down for just a minute. Our passage says very clearly, He that goes forth weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Listen, there is no harvest because there has not been any weeping. When was the last time you weeped? When was the last time you had a burden? Daniel had a burden when he prayed, We have sinned in Daniel 9.5. Nehemiah had a burden when he prayed, We have sinned in Nehemiah 1.6. Jeremiah had a burden when he prayed, We have sinned in Jeremiah 3.25. Isaiah had the same burden and he followed his prayer up with a burning question. He said in Isaiah 64... 5b through 7, he says, Behold, thou wast angry, and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? That's the question. Shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and, our, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one that calls upon thy name that bestirs himself to take hold of thee. For thou hast hid thy face from us, and hast delivered us into the hand of our iniquities. And if you stop there, the situation sounds hopeless and helpless. But listen, God never leaves us in a situation of hopelessness and helplessness. Listen to the very next verse, Isaiah 64, 8. Yet, thank God for yet, yet, O Lord, Thou art our Father. We are the clay, and Thou art the potter. We are all the work of Thy hands. Listen, go ahead and stand to your feet this morning. I'm not ready to give up the burden. I'm not ready to give up the dream this morning. I'm not ready to just stay at a place where we can only dream. I'm ready for deliverance. The altars are open. You might be in a place this morning where you can only dream of deliverance, but God wants you to know that deliverance is just around the corner. Hang on, it's coming. It's coming. Deliverance is coming. Thank you for joining us for this special message. We hope you were blessed and encouraged by the preaching and teaching of God's Word. Now, may the Lord bless you, keep you, make His face to shine upon you, and give you peace. Amen.